Medic! Welcome back to another edition of the Medic Up Podcast. Today we're going to have Charlie Martell, a.k.a. Tier, who is a Special Forces Medic uh, from the U.S. US Army. And uh, pretty lucky enough to have him tell a story about uh, doing an amputation in the field in Afghanistan, uh, almost up on the Pakistan border in 2003. Absolutely resource limited. And just so you, to kind of give you guys a lead in, I just really want you to listen to his mindset and how he prepared for it and how he dealt with stuff that came up throughout the procedure. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, you guys can check him out on Instagram and other social media on Instagram. He's Red Leader Standing By. Just go ahead and search that account and uh, look for some of the, the medical goodness he throws up there. Um, also, he's a great writer. Uh, you can read some of his posts on there. It's very verbose. The guy's got away with words. And uh, it's kind of a weird episode. It should be like a part one of two uh, because we kind of run out of time. I have to like awkwardly leave at the end of it to go teach a hey, stop the bleed class. And before that, we kind of trail off talking about tourniquets. So give it a listen and uh, just really focus in on, on his mindset of what was going through his head while he was trying to prepare and, and perform this procedure in an extremely resource limited region uh, with, you know, relatively inexperienced people. He didn't have a full surgical team. It's going to be, it's good stuff to listen to. Again, thank you to our sponsors, Fuel the Machine Apparel. Fuel the Machine Apparel is based on the idea of not just a brand, but a lifestyle. They're pro-health, pro-first responder, pro-military. They believe, you know, you got to take care of yourself before you can help others. So they believe strongly in fitness and things like that. It's a, it's a great first responder owned and operated company. Uh, all their t-shirt designs are their own. They come up with them. They print them right here in the U.S. They're their own quality control. Uh, so like they say, Fuel the Machine Apparel, be the solution, not the problem. Go ahead, check them out, www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. Like I said before, you know, I have my personal favorite. I've got my Uberlance t-shirt. Thing is awesome. Death Fighter looks great. They just dropped the paramedic one. So any of my 80s kids out there who watch G.I. Joe uh, coming up, go check out the website. You'll see what I'm saying. Um, these aren't those, like I said, those cheesy fire department EMS t-shirts like Race the Reaper and I Fight What You Fear. These things look awesome, man. Go check them out, www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. And if you're looking for uh, first aid equipment, uh, IFAX trauma trauma equipment, <clears throat> if you're uh, working on the street or you got friends who are first responders, go check out Medical Gear Outfitters. Uh, it's owned and operated by a paramedic. He's got a mission to equip individuals with the top quality supri- supplies training and the mindset that they need to empower themselves to respond to an emergency. They've got the equipment and the training you need. Head on over to www.medicalgearoutfitters.com. Check out their selection of pre-made first aid kits and trauma kits. If you're looking for a stop the bleed kit, Medical Gear Outfitters got you covered. If you want to build your own kit, you want to spec out it, spec out your own stuff. They got the pouches, they got the gear. You can mix and match. You can Build a kit from anything from a family first aid kit, bumps, scrapes, stings, stuff like that, all the way up to stop the bleed, a first responder IFAC kit, anything. You can also build up your big mass casualty kits as well. You don't see it on the website, drop them an email, they'll get you squared away. It's got free shipping on all orders as usual. And if you guys check out the show notes, you'll get 10% off when you go check out their store 
through the Medic Up podcast link. So www.medicalgearoutfitters.com. Remember, you never know when you'll be the first responder. Get the right gear and the right training. Medical Gear Outfitters. And now here's Charlie Martell, Red Leader, standing by. Give it a listen. I hope you guys dig it. Today on the Medic Up podcast, we've got Charlie Martell from the internet slash Instagrams, a.k.a. Tier. Tier, yep. Tier's my real name. Charlie Martell is my and if, uh, again, I don't didn't get a big bio from you, so you're going to have to kind of give us, and I'll roll it into our first question, and we'll just get right into it. If you guys don't follow Charlie, or actually on Instagram, it's at Red Leader Standing By. Um, you know, you guys know a little bit about him if you're in the medical community, um, definitely the military community. So you are still, I think, 18 Delta. Uh, I am. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm an 18 Delta. I'm, I'm a little out of currency just because I came off deployment. Um, but I'm, I'm also a little out of currency because I'm a, uh, I'm a Sergeant Major in Special Forces now, and I have been for a few years. Um, but I'm in the National Guard. Uh, so my civilian job is actually as an 18 Delta. And my military job is uh, running around with a coffee cup telling people that their mustache looks terrible. <laughs> right. So <laughs> that's good stuff. So does that – so you're kind of – are you kind of at the end of your career or, I mean, just kind of finishing out or getting ready to retire or – I I'll have 24 years in in May. Right on. I know my youthful beauty does not give that away. But, uh, yeah, I, I would say I'm in the August of my career. Uh, as long as I don't, uh, piss off the wrong people, I should be able to keep trucking. Um, I don't by any means feel, feel like I'm done. I feel like I've still got some gas in the tank and, and some more to give. So I'll keep trucking as long as they let me. That's great. And I, I, I've followed you probably since about, uh, maybe mid, early, mid 2017, when you did a photo essay that maybe I think North American rescue probably, uh, reposted and it was a it was a case that you had taken you had done a field amputation and uh, kind of we yeah. followed we followed that patient for a while so but you've spent a lot of your deployed career or a lot of your career prior to the last two years as an 18 delta in special forces how did how did you get up how did you end up in there was that just like hey i know the military always says we need medics or was it something you were looking to do, or it was just an open spot, and you said, or someone said you got voluntold and said, "Hey, you're you're going to you're going to school." You know, I wish I could say it had anything to do with wanting to make the world a better place or any sort of altruism, but uh, it was. Um, I got into SF. Um, well, we'll back it up. I used to ride horses for the army. I started off driving tanks, and that had nothing to do with anything I wanted to do either. I started off driving tanks because I wanted to get out and go back to the ski resort I worked at prior to joining the Army and drive uh, snowcats because that was the coolest job on the mountain. So huge aspirations. Um, when I got to Fort Hood, Texas, they were looking for people to volunteer to be in this uh, horse-mounted unit. It was a show unit. Um, and I didn't really have any desire to go to Kuwait, which is where my unit was going right off the bat. So I tried out for this, and there was a, a lot of hazing. It was hard, but I was an E-nothing, so all I knew was hard and getting yelled at. So it was kind of water off a duck's back. And I spent the first four and a half years in, in the Army uh, running around the country TDY and, and riding horses for the Army. When I left that and went back to uh, an armor unit, 
I, I was not happy because there was no esprit de corps like what I had grown up with in the horse detachment. The horse detachment was completely volunteer. If you didn't like how hard it was, um, the door was, was right there. You could go back to a regular line unit anytime you want. Um, and it was, and it was hard work being out there. Um, everybody gave it their all or, or they weren't there. And when I went back to a regular line unit, I didn't experience that. So, um, I, I was playing rugby for the, the post rugby team and a buddy of mine, a teammate of mine was, was going to SFAS, uh, special forces assessment and selection. And, uh, so I decided to go to the, the SF recruiter with him and, um, they, uh, they sent me to selection. Now, the, re- well, the other reason I went to selection though, was honestly, if I hadn't gone, I had in the back of my mind that if I didn't go, I'd always wonder if I could have made it. You know, I'd be that guy at the bar that said, oh, yeah, I was going to do that, but, you know, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And uh, I have some of those stories from further selections, but I don't have that about SFAS, and I'm, I'm pretty tight about that. But um, at that point, when I went to selection, you know, it was 21 days of pure suck, and uh, there were several times I wanted to quit. Um, I, w- I had some pride at the end of that 21 days when, I, when they selected me. and um, at that point, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, both physically and mentally. And um, they gave me uh, a list of MOSs to choose from for, you know, my preference. The Army is going to choose it at the end of the day. But I wrote down 18 Delta because I'd just done the hardest thing in my life. Why not keep that thing going? Um, I'd heard 18 Delta was the hardest one. So that's how I ended up being in 18 Delta. I challenged myself. I passed that challenge, so I went on to the next challenge. And 18 Delta was that next challenge. Fantastic. And, again, for people that don't know, 18 Delta is what? Special Forces Medical Sergeant. Correct. Right. Yeah. So how long – what is – when you say, you know, it's the, it was known as the it's known as the hardest training that you could do, what makes it hard? Like how, how long is that training? I think when people understand that, it puts it in perspective uh, how much you learn in a very short period of time. Sure. Yeah, so the Special Forces Qualification course for the other MOSs is about a year, it's about a year and a half with language training. The medical portion of the 18 Delta course, Special Forces Medic course, by itself is a year. When you put that into perspective, physician's assistant school is two years, and one year of that is clinicals, one year of that is, is school. So you're taking a, a dude off the street who may or may not have any medical background whatsoever. And you're making him um, one of the best medics in the world, bar none. I don't, I don't have any qualms about saying that. That is not hyperbole. Um, and you're not training him in specialty. You're training him in all the specialties. So now you've got a dude that after a year is an expert in combat trauma management he knows clinical medicine. He, he's done hospital rotations. He's worked in an ER as, as a medical provider. Uh, he knows paramedicine. You know, I did a, I did a, a month-long rotation with FDNY, worked in the back of a bus uh, in the South Bronx, bouncing around old uh, Dead Rabbit Society-type streets. It was interesting. Um, we, we do basic dentistry. We know basic veterinary work. We can do our own labs with uh, a, a field set. Uh, we do our own radiology. It's uh, it's drinking from the fire hose, and you've got to be in 
commando type shape the whole time you're doing this. So that's what makes it so difficult is you are, you are a, a master of all, <laughs> you, I won't say you're a master of all trades because there's no way you can cram eight years of medical school into one year, especially when you're doing commando stuff as well. But yeah, it, we're definitely top of the game in combat trauma management. And we know n enough of all those clinical specialties that we can at least narrow down a diagnosis and do some telemedicine if we need to. Right. And you're doing it again, like I was kind of saying before in the, in the interview, in the pre-interview stuff, you know, it's resource limited because, you know, it's great to be able to do that type of medicine, you know, first world country trauma center, eh, maybe an hour or two away, we need a helicopter. But when you're ending up having to do jungle medicine, you know, I don't have anything to plug my my uh, Pocus probe into all of a sudden, or the batteries are done, or something happened, and you know, now you're back to doing percussion the old way, trying to figure out what's going on in someone's chest or belly, or you know, trying to, you know, again, use your use your environment, your resources. So yeah, I've definitely done the uh, the old tap on the ribs, and uh, you know, <laughs> looked around for a fundoscope when I'm when I'm at a mud hut on the Pakistani border. <laughs> yep. So what are what are pretty much team responsibilities for the 18 Delta? Like you've got you've got your team, and then you know, you know, special forces kind of the training model is you know train the partner forces, and one guy trains two guys, two guys train four guys, four guys train you know, and, it, and you force multiplier as kind of that's publicized by for special forces. Sure. But what else? What uh, else is there? Well. So sometimes it'll depend on if you're if your ODA, if which is a special forces team, operational detachment alpha, has a specialty. Uh, most of the specialties have to do with the infiltration routes, like if you're a dive team or a free fall team, uh, something like that. So you've got to keep those skills up as well. Um, but there's also administrative tasks. So a, a special forces team is uh, designed to be completely inclusive. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be a 12 man unit that operates at a company level as a battalion level force multiplier if that makes any sense so the team leader a captain would be advising an indigenous battalion commander and each one of those guys on a team could be uh, the, the senior guys could be essentially a company commander and the e6s could be uh platoon sergeants so that's that's how it was designed for unconventional warfare because we have that level of uh, maturity and, and staff ability, skill level, planning everything else, we also take care of our own administrative stuff within the team. So, um, for example, in 18 Charlie, the engineer on the team, his collateral duty administratively is to be the team supply sergeant. Um, the, uh, the medic, the 18 Delta, his collateral duty is to be the admin clerk. So not only is he handling all the medical stuff for the team and the medical readiness, he's also handling all the administrative readiness, all the pay problems, um, just the, the mountain of paperwork that goes into keeping a soldier ready by Army standards is, is staggering. Uh, and I feel that especially now that I'm a sergeant major. Uh, it's it's just crazy. So you're, you're pulled in a lot of different directions. When you when you tack on all the additional advanced skills, like being a sniper, uh, being a JTAC, all that stuff, it, it is, even as a part-time 18 Delta, you're a full-time 18 Delta. There's there's really no such thing as a part-time 18 Delta. 
that's a full plate one way either way you look at it i mean whether it's you know like you said wow um so uh let's let's kind of go back like, to go back some of that austere medicine and like the resource limited medicine how does how does a mind how does your mindset play a role in that um like i said back in 2017 i i really became aware of you when north american put that photo essay up uh, you guys you did that field amputation so and like i mean it was i mean i was sucked into it i mean i love medicine to begin with as a medic as a paramedic but um you know i the way it was written and the questions people asked and the takeaway points i was like wow this, this guy this guy's awesome and again it was just like you know i've kind of i've throughout the years again i'm spoiled i'm right down the street from north american rescue and we're friends with a lot of them they've helped out with our classes and stuff at our county ems service when tourniquets kind of came into existence um so we've kind of met you know some some special forces medics here and there and pjs and stuff like that and there's one thing that always strikes me about them is they're they're super humble and they will tell you anything you want to know about medicine like they've they've got all that jammed into their head but they're so happy to push or to kind of pass it on to somebody who takes an interest in it so you know the the mindset part of that really it was it wasn't for a while that i really understood that that plays a really big role in clinical and critical decision making yeah you hit the nail on the head with humility i mean i'm i'm super humble i just ask me i'm i'm so humble it's it's crazy <laughs> Um, austere medicine. Well, okay. So since we're talking about the amputation, um, I guess the first thing I want to say on that is that was an elective surgery, which seems a little crazy that I'm doing an elective surgery in a mud hut on the Pakistani border wearing mechanic coveralls and, and a uh, cravat around my, my beard. So it doesn't, my beard hairs don't drop into the guy's wound. But, um, yeah, that was, that was an elective surgery. However, I mean, it's borderline elective. The, that, that dude, uh, that dude had had a, a non-union fracture for about eight months prior to coming to see me. He, that's why he wanted it to be cut off. And um, there was a hospital uh, about an hour away in Pakistan, but I, I never, I was never there. But I saw their work. Like I had sent some people there previously, and then I had seen the follow-up, and I'd actually fixed some of their work. Uh, yeah, in, in my butt hut. I didn't even have a clinic uh, out at that point. We built that base. Um, and the only reason we didn't get rocketed or shot at on a daily basis is because we hired every fighting age male in, in the area to, the, to uh, fill Hesco's. It was so new that when Chinooks would come in, uh, not only were they landing on poppies in full bloom that hadn't been mowed down yet, um, sometimes they would blow over the Hesco's that hadn't been filled yet. Yeah, so when we say austere, we were even austere by military standards. We were, we were out there flapping. My clinic was uh, the the front patio in front of my room, and it was right next to where my, my team ate. We were living off the local economy. Uh, our, our bath was the Kunar River. You know, it was, it was, it was out there. And for any military members that are, are, are listening, that, that base eventually turned into Bob Bostic which was a was a major hub for a lot of combat operations uh, in the years after. But at that time, you know, we we were the plank holders. We we signed a lease for that land with the Afghan and uh, the Afghan landowner, and it was it was out there. We were the northernmost U.S. presence on the border at the time. So um, getting into the austere part of that, 
uh, I didn't have all the tools in my toolbox to do that procedure the way I wanted to do it. So I actually sent him away. He asked me to cut his leg off. I said, yeah, I can do that. Come back in a week. Um, and as soon as he left, I got on SATCOM and um, sent off a message to uh, to a surgeon that we had in Asadabad, which is a couple hours south. Gave him the, the, the case study, everything else. And he's actually the one that gave me permission to do it. So I don't want to make it sound like I was just a cowboy out in the Wild West, or in that case, the Wild East, and uh, and just doing my own thing. I actually had uh, some medical oversight and, and some notes. Now, once the dude came in, I was it. I was the surgeon. I was a surgeon. I was the attending doctor. I was, I was the lead anesthetist. I was everything. Um, but I did have... I did have permission from a uh, full-blown MD surgeon to uh, to do the procedure. And it pretty much went from there. It it went from there. Yeah, I mean, I can talk through the procedure if you if, if you want me to. Well, I mean, it's more, uh, you know, I mean, uh, absolutely, but I mean, it's definitely, you know, what goes it was really really what I'm looking for is what really goes through your mind when you have to play all those roles and you don't have a clinic set up, you're you're playing five roles, they're all critical. It's not like you're like I'm going to teach someone to be the anesthetist today. You know, you're monitoring IV anesthesia, you're monitoring airway, you're you're doing the you're doing the cutting. You're, you know, right. that's what that's what I want to I want to hear about that. <laughs> Sure. So at that time, uh, that was my first trip, and I, I was less than a year out of the 18 Delta course at that point. My skills were fresh, and I gotta be honest, I was I was pretty cocky. Um, I was I was the Han Solo of military medicine. <laughs> I was I was out there doing my own thing, and um, and I was confident in my abilities. Uh, if you asked me to do that again today, I would probably be like, let's find another 18 Delta or at least a team of 18 Deltas, and uh, and do this together. Uh, and I mean, some of that's just because I don't practice medicine nearly as much now as I did then. Um, so my uh, my tactile skills are a little less than they were then. Uh, I do a lot of team. But, um, but yeah, back then my, my skills were fresh and they were sharp. But looking back on it, I know the mistakes I made in that procedure as, as well. So what went through my mind then was, yeah, absolutely, I can do this. And when I actually got into the procedure, there was a couple of, uh, of hold-my-breath moments um, where things were going south and there wasn't a lot I could do about it except keep charging through because I was already in the procedure. Um, but at the same time, everybody's looking to me like I'm a medical god uh, and I can't, you know, I've assembled a surgical team at this point, which consisted of my warrant officer. I trained him to do the anesthesia, which really I just trained him to do the the uh, circle of life checks, checking for pain response, checking respirations, et cetera, so forth. Um, and then informing me if anything happened so I could adjust, I could I could titrate the anesthesia accordingly, which I was, I was running through his sternum, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I ran it through a, a fast one, and I okay into his into his sternum and I was doing a ketamine trip. Yeah. I uh I uh I induced him with, with Medazolam but and uh he had some morphine on board as well but yeah it was ketamine that was keeping my surgical plane. Um and then uh 
my assistant surgeon was an 18 Charlie that used to be a corpsman in the Navy uh, before he went to the Q course. So he had some medical experience and he knew about sterile fields and whatnot, which was important. And then my scrub techs were regular Navy corpsmen that were from uh, the Marine platoon we had there for base security. I had one that was actually in the OR uh, that was doing, uh, that was more or less sterile, at least his hands were, so he could hand me things. And then the other one was a runner that would that would come in and out. And my surgical suite was a room in the mud hut that we had thrown plastic down. We'd thrown plastic over the window, uh, tried to put plastic over uh, the area where we were doing the surgery in the, in the ceiling so that nothing would fall into uh, the area. And um, it, it was the Marine PL's room, and I kicked him out so I could do so I could do it. Yeah. Um, what was going through my mind? So let, let me talk about the uh, oh crap moments in this procedure. I, I keep checking myself because I was definitely cussing under my breath through uh, through a lot of this, and I I don't want you to get labeled explicit on your podcast. Oh, it's already and labeled. I, Oh well, it's good. It's 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 CMS related, and uh, you know all my guests have mouth like sailors, so we're good. Okay, cool. All right, I'll let it fly then. So, um, okay, so I I asked the guy to come back in a week on a Saturday, and the reason I asked him to come back in a week is so I could request the supplies to bring to come in on the ring flight. Uh, A ring flight is a resupply bird, a um, helicopter that typically comes in once or twice a week to uh to outstations it didn't always come and on this particular saturday morning it hadn't come and i wasn't sure if it was going to um and that was typically for security reasons or air assets got diverted somewhere else so the patient showed up on the back of his nephew uh as he was told to do and um he's just sitting up there on, on the litter hanging out and the bird hasn't showed up, and I had requested additional uh, meds, especially ketamine, and um, a ring saw, a surgical ring saw, to actually do the amputation because I didn't have that in my kit. And uh, the bird hadn't showed up, so I told um, the 68 whiskey, uh, a regular army medic that I had, I told him to go grab the uh, sawzall blade out of the 18 Charlie kit and put it in my um, autoclave. So two things about that. If you're not sure what a sawzall is, that's just a, a DeWalt reciprocating saw like you'd buy at Home Depot. And his eyes got big, like, you're going to cut this guy's leg off with a sawzall? I'm like, man, yeah, maybe. <laughs> what saws do, man. <laughs> yeah. And then the second thing to note about that is I didn't have an actual autoclave. My autoclave, I was, I was doing cold sterilization and a plastic, uh, it's kind of like a Pringles can. But it was it was Lay's potato chips. It was a plastic Lay's potato chip can that I'd filled up with betadine. Nice. So that, that was <laughs> it was like barbershop uh, autoclave, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I was just gonna set that in there and and uh, sterilize the blade that way. Um, after he went to do that, the bird did show up. I got my supplies. I checked everything out. And one thing I learned about medical supply is you get what you ask for. I did not request the handles that go with that saw. Well, so you and just got the middle part of it without the rings. <laughs> awesome. No ring. Yeah. So I um, I tried to get creative. I chucked a couple of smoke grenades out into the LZ and tried to put the uh, grenade rings, pin rings on, on the handle 
and uh, it didn't fit. That didn't work. So I ended up just monkey gripping the thing, wow. which it's, it's amazing. I didn't break the saw. Knowing what I know now about that, that particular saw, it's amazing. And if you look at the pictures and if you've ever done any kind of surgery with the saw, you will cringe because you'll see how acute of an angle I was cutting this bone at. And that is, that is a sure way to snap the saw. It is just pure luck, intervention, what, whatever you want to call it, that I didn't snap the saw. Uh, in which case, I probably would have had to have busted out the reciprocal saw again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so the second oh shit moment in this was uh, getting IV access on this dude. The guy was no idea how old he was. And that's something about Afghans. They don't know how old they are either. Uh, that's just not a thing. I think he told me he was 16. But if you look at pictures of him, he is maybe 16 in leap years. Uh, <laughs> He was up there. It was somewhere between dirt and Jesus. <laughs> um, and his skin was tough as leather. Uh, I just stood at the head of the litter and I let all my medical people, I would just point at somebody and say, okay, you're on IV. We had done so many medevacs out there in Kazvacs that essentially, unless something was really dire life-threatening and needed my hands on it, I would, I would stand at the head of the litter and act like an attending ER doc and just point at people and tell them what to do. Um, and that's what I did when we were prepping this patient. Um, but nobody could get an IV on him. So uh, I was down to two options. I could either do a venous cut down, which is where you actually incise the skin, lift the vein out uh, with by uh, putting mosquito forceps underneath it, and then cannulate the vein that way and sew it in. Uh, or I could do a jug stick. Jug stick obviously being the less invasive of these two procedures. Um, keep in mind, this is 2003, so um, combat medicine is still, I would say, in it's, it's in its new infancy. Um, there's a lot of things we know now that we had we either had forgotten completely or didn't know at all back then. So uh, jug stick, I go to do the jug stick. I had been trained how to do it, but I'd never actually done one on a human. And uh, I got the stick. I got flash. But I didn't get a lot of flash. And this is an important lesson for any of the EMTs that might be listening to this. If you're doing a, a jug stick, doing it on the jugular vein, you will get flash initially, but it will not flash back. It's not going to flood that, that flash chamber. And if you, if you, normally when you do an IV, so you're doing it on the AC, a big old pipe right there in the, in the front of the elbow, if you don't occlude the vein, what happens? Blood goes everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Freaks, freaks out your preceptor, freaks out your partner. Honestly, not that big of a deal because <laughs> I, my side note, my preceptor, my paramedic partner in the FDNY, uh, I was notorious for, for not occluding the vein when I was doing a, an IV in the back of the bus. She said, you're going to bleed them out. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's, it's not enough blood to do that. Anyway, this makes a mess to clean up is really all it is. I digress. You do not get that same amount of flash in a jug stick. So when I didn't, when I just got a little bit of flash in the chamber, but not enough to fill it and not enough pressure to actually come out the end of the, the back of the, uh, of the cannula, I thought I had blown the vein. And I, that was an oh shit moment. Knowing what I know now, I know I had a patent stick. I had a patent vein and I could have run everything through that. But I didn't know that. 
so I DC'd the whole, the whole process and decided to go from there. Um, it was a good stick. I didn't think it was a good stick, so I moved on. I had this new thing in my aid bag called a Fast One, an inner osseous kit that looks like just brutal torture device. Um, but I'd never used it. I'd been issued two of them. It was new equipment. So I had, I, took, I decided that was less invasive than doing a Venus cut down. So I had one of my Navy corpsmen reading the instructions off <laughs> while I did it. On the job training. On the job training, yeah. And somehow that, that did not lose confidence in in, uh, in the people around me, or, or they didn't lose confidence in me with that. Um, so I, I got the IO uh, into the guy's chest, and by this time I had given him ketamine uh, IM to start knocking him out because I felt bad for the dude. He'd been stuck. He'd already been a pin cushion. He's got a leg that's dangling off. You know, he's, he's, the dude's in constant pain. So I'd, I'd, uh, I'd give him a little morphine bump, and I'd give him uh, a ketamine. Uh, I forget how many megs, but what I do remember is you can give 13 milligrams per kilogram for about a half an hour of surgical plane, but maybe it's 10. I don't know. It's been a while. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, I gave him enough to knock him out. Um, yeah, so he was he was down and out before I, I did the, the uh, IO kit and before I did the jug stick just because I felt bad for the dude. So we move him into the OR suite, uh, do the whole prep, uh, put a ACE bandage on his leg to, to squeeze as much um, O2 carrying blood back into the body that's staying as possible. Um, I, I put a tourniquet above the knee uh, to, to keep from bleeding. And by the way, tourniquets back then, we did not have commercially produced tourniquets. So this tourniquet was actually a cravat and uh, some tongue depressors taped together for a windlass and the uh, the ring from a Gatorade bottle wow. to secure it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I remember reading that. I thought that I was trying to zoom in on the picture to see how I could see it. But yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I also had uh, a, uh, a, a non-windless one-handed tourniquet that had come out of uh, JSOC when the medics there invented it. And... Uh, it didn't. It didn't work well, but that's that's the best of what we had for commercially produced tourniquets. Then, even though it was the army that was producing it, I uh, I might have one of those floating around in an old box somewhere. If I can find it, I'll post a picture of it. Yeah. So one is done, two is one. I had two tourniquets on there, and then um, I was going to do what's called a shark bite technique, which is where I. Uh, basically cut a V in the skin. It kind of looks like a Pac-Man mouth. So you cut the tissue along that V-shaped line, and then you cut the bone at the apex of that line. The intent being, when you close the wound, you've got enough muscle and tissue to cover the stump of the bone. So you're cutting the, the bone shorter than you're cutting the tissue. This was a huge oh shit moment, maybe the biggest oh shit moment, because I didn't rehearse this with my assistant surgeon, my 18 Charlie. I assumed because he was so good at doing all this other trauma medicine with me, I, I really never really had to tell him to do anything. I thought he was a Sockham graduate, and he was not. Um, and even if he was, we don't really get into surgery till SFMS, the second half of the 18 Delta course. Um, so when I handed the scalpel to him to make his cut, he cut 
just a straight vertical line, even with the apex of my shark bite. Yeah, and I remember just this, no! <laughs> so, I decided that was a problem, but we were going to have to deal with it when we got to that point. Um, started incising through uh, all the tissue, and this is one of those procedures where you have to be aggressive. I mean, you can cut through the skin and be delicate there just to get your line down, but after that, man, it's, it is, it's butcher shop medicine. Yeah, it's like you, cutting through raw steak. I mean, you have to it, cut through muscle that, and, yeah. Yep. But, uh, those, so the tourniquets that I, I had on there, they were not tight. So he was still bleeding. And the reason they weren't tight is because at that time with tourniquets, we believed that if you put a tourniquet, if you cranked a tourniquet down on somebody, they were going to lose that limb. That's what we had been taught. Even as 18 deltas, that's what we've been taught. And fortunately, that is still common knowledge or common belief to a lot of uh, preceptors and a lot of um, program manager, EMS program managers and attending docs. And um, the the word is finally getting out through programs like Stop the Bleed and uh, my, uh, my buddy's program, First Care Provider, where they just go around the, the country educating both uh, first responders, uh, lay people, and, and EMS personnel. Um, tourniquets save lives. They do not cost limbs unless you – you can have a tourniquet on somebody for uh, – let's see. I, I think the current standard is six hours. Yeah, four to six you, hours is pretty yeah. much local civilian EMS. And... Yep. So what I teach lay people when it comes to tourniquets is when in doubt, whip it out, right? Most most EMS and doctors will say you need to put it uh, as low as you possibly can. I go against that because if I'm telling somebody, if this is the one time this one person has got a chance to save somebody's life, I'm putting, I'm telling them to put it as high and tight as possible because I don't want them to have to second guess or adjust or anything else. Yeah, we're, they put we're pushing, we're pushing higher die, high, high and tight the whole, the whole nine yards. We don't even, excellent. we don't even do the. We don't even do like the step two anymore. Like, if, well, if you can visualize the wound two to four inches above, listen, right? That's great if you have the time and you have one patient. But if you're in active violence or you're in mass cow, whatever it is, it's high and tight. And you know, again, we're spoiled. I have two trauma, two level one traumas within 35 miles of each other. We're going to be okay. They're not going to be on for six hours. Well, you know what? Even in austere medicine, wilderness medicine, I'm telling people put it high and tight, put it over the club. Because if it's bad enough bleed that you've got to put a tourniquet on, every second counts. You, you've got a gusher there. You've decided this is massive hemorrhage. It doesn't matter if it's arterial venous. Blood's blood. If it's, if, if once it's out of the container, it's not carrying oxygen anymore. So you're putting that thing as high and tight. And for, for people listening, the reason you do that is because your pipes are bigger the closer you get to the heart. Not only that, but if we're talking about your limbs, you've got one big backstop at as a femur and a leg, and one big backstop as a humerus in the arm. If you go below that, now you're fighting against two bones. Arteries run next to bones. So you're trying to – the whole idea with a tourniquet is you're compressing that garden hose of an artery against something hard, which is that long bone. If you do that against a tib-fib, it's harder to do. If you do it against a radius and ulna, it's harder to do. It's easy to do. I can do it with my fingers against my humerus. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of me, but I got some, you know, I got some guns, so no big deal. Um, femur's a little harder to do with, with 
manually, but you can do it with a knee or with the, with your palms. You can do it. But the point is, you've got to go high and tight so you compress that artery against that longbow. And you don't, if you put it low, I guarantee you're going to end up moving it, you're going to end up adjusting it, and all that clotting that you may have gained, you're going to lose as soon as you move that tourniquet. So that is, that is a huge educational piece that we'll need to realize. That's the, unfortunately, a lot of the people that are pushing protocols in the field are not people in the field. Uh, they're, they're people that are standing at the head of a bed at a hospital and, and can direct traffic and have all these other tools in their toolbox and have multiple trained personnel to do exactly what they're, what they're telling them to do. It, it really needs, we need more representation for TCCC and TECC from tactical people that have been in the field that have done this for real. We're trying. That, We're trying to that, push it as much as we can. Man, it's, it's, it, it feels like it's getting harder, though, uh, with a lot of the products that are coming out and the different companies trying to make tourniquets and having that is it Katia approved versus not Katia approved argument every week. It's really it's gotten to me to the point where I don't really want to. I've scaled back my TEC, even the NAMT TECC course. Um, it's just there's so much weird thinking out there. I spend half of a class trying to discount weird EMS dogma and it's like God you know I mean I tell them I mean this is a civilian trauma course I don't kick doors I don't wear a special colored hat uh, I have no military training I'm not on a SWAT team but I'll teach you trauma medicine um, these are simple this is a simple toolkit these are simple skill set anybody should have but you guys gotta understand they're evidence-based I know what you heard I know what you think you've heard you know we find the fake cats in people's kits we see EMS systems buying fake cat tourniquets they're not doing it because they're doing it on purpose. They're doing it because they're trying to save a buck because some logistics person is like, well, budget says this. I've got, I can get 10 for this much or I can get 30 for this much. Let's get 30. And you're like, those are airsoft tourniquets. Those are for show. You're not going to save lives. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's getting harder and harder to do. It, it seems like it should be getting easier with the amount of data and the success of like hands-only CPR, like the bleeding control. In fact, I, I hate to do it because I'm going to have to cut you off and we're going to have to pick it back up. We're going to teach a stop the bleed to the tri school because they got a bunch of kits and have no idea how to use them. That is excellent, man. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, before you cut me off, let me get on one more thing with commercial tourniquets. You, you really have to look at the source. It, I, I love Amazon. I love Amazon Prime. Be very careful of what you're buying off Amazon and where it came from read the reviews if it sounds like english was not their first language that it's probably a knockoff tourniquet and why is that important well let's talk about the mechanics real quick this is this is not new technology romans had commercially i'm doing air quotes here you can't see commercially produced tourniquets for their soldiers way back in the day this is not new technology it's just simple mechanics you're compressing an artery against a bone so what's the difference right I mean, we can do an improvised tourniquet and it'll work. It's not as fast, but we can do it. The difference is cat tourniquet is on its seventh generation. That means they had to make improvements based on previous failures. The cat tourniquet has failed. It's a great piece of equipment, but there is a reason it's on its seventh generation. And I do believe in this seventh generation because they upped the, the quality of plastic they used for the backing and for the windlass because that's what was failing. It wasn't the, wasn't the Velcro or anything else, you're putting a massive amount of torque on this thing. And 
if this thing has been exposed to the elements, which is weird, we keep fighting in 120 degree weather, it, plastic doesn't do well in that, and sand and dust, everything else, the thing is going to get weak. It's going to be weakened by elements. If you used it in training at all, it's no longer good. This is a one-time use thing. So the seventh generation has good plastic. People that are producing this in China or wherever are not using that same high-grade plastic. So that airsoft tourniquet, you might pay $15 versus $28, but you might die too. So that's that's really important. Yeah, most definitely, and we, we do. We, we find that... We find it in classes. We tell, like, we'll we'll run something. We'll tell them, hey, bring your bring your aid bag, bring your first aid kit, and we'll look and we'll kind of do a little quick thing about how to spot the fakes. And people will be like, yep. oh, is this fake? I'm like, yep. So and you know, give me that, you know, or you keep it for training. Here's a here's a new one. You know, here's here's what to look for the next time. Buy it from. Don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it from buy it from TacMed. Buy it from North American or their affiliates. You know, do it. Yep. Do what you got to do. I mean, it's not worth uh, saving the six or seven dollars. So. But, Absolutely not. Yeah, we're we're at we're running into it, and it's just the education. Like I'm I'm afraid to go over to this school right now to to hear these teachers because I know we're gonna gonna do the whole wound packing thing, and I guarantee as soon as our bleed or as soon as our wound trainers start to bleed, they're gonna go. I'm not doing that, even though it's fake. It's you know it's not warm. It's cold. It's not gonna hurt them. They can't hurt anybody. It's pieces of plastic. They're gonna go. I'm not doing that. Like, well, you're going to have to one day, possibly, or, you know, tomorrow when you're in a horrible car wreck and your family member needs a little bit of wound packing before somebody can get to them. So, but yeah, the, the, the education is just, it, it's, it's our job. It's our job. It's my primary job, but it's just, it's more, it gets, it seems like it's getting more difficult. Yeah. In the education process, you have to let them know that if this tourniquet is not hurting the patient, they're doing it wrong. Yeah. Pull harder. Yep. <laughs> pull harder. <laughs> Cool. Well, I do. I do have to go. I hate that, and I do want to finish up. So let's schedule. Let's figure out whatever works for you, and we'll make it happen. And I'll just edit it all together, and it'll be cool. Yeah, man. Just give me a text. Give me a call. You know how to get a hold of me. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate it. All right, Chris. All right, man. Have a good weekend. You too.